Welcome to New Life Christian Church. We're glad you're here. We're in a teaching series right now called The Story. And if this is your first time with us, like I was saying, this is a great Sunday to be joining us because, because this series that we're in is about to take a big shift. It's about to take a turn. It's almost going to be a whole brand new series in and of itself because we have been studying the entire Bible this year. Way back on April 23rd, does it seem like it's been that long? Way back on April 23rd, we launched this series in the very beginning of the Bible. We've been using this resource here to help us. It's called The Story. And this is the Bible, large portions of it, right from the, from the Word of God, word for word. And it's arranged in chronological order and divided up into chapters so it reads like any other book. So we gave everybody in our church a copy of this, and we started on chapter 1, and since April 23rd, we've been working our way through it, and last week we finished the Old Testament. And I, I'm telling you, it, it was great, but I want you to think of it like this. We just finished part 1, and now we're moving into the New Testament, part 2. And if you would like to go on this journey with us, then here's what I'd ask you to do. Before you leave here today, if you haven't done so already, just visit our welcome center out there by the main entrance. And we have a whole stack of these, and, and we'd like to give it to you. It's our gift to you. We'd also like to invite you to come back and, and join us for the New Testament part of this series. You just got to go home and, and start reading. We do a chapter a week, and then I preach on the contents of that chapter. And then many people in our church are divided up into life groups. And they studied out even more during the week. But um, I'd love to invite you to go on this journey with us. And the New Testament is going to be so exciting. And, and I, just, I just can't wait to unpack all of it with you. Well, when we opened the very first page of the story way back in April, the first words we read together were from Genesis 1-1. Do you remember what they were? In the beginning, God created. It's the very first words of the Bible. In the beginning, God created, and we learned on that very first Sunday together that God created this, this wonderful place, and he created mankind to, to fill this wonderful place, and it was absolutely perfect. And that is until sin entered the picture. Right there in the first page or two of the story, it's where we, we meet Satan, who is our enemy then. He's still our enemy today. And we learn how he tempted Adam and Eve to do the one thing that God told them not to do. They ate from the forbidden tree. And I'm going to just say it. It's kind of been downhill ever since. Would you agree? From that moment, sin seemed to have taken a root in people's hearts. It's almost like sin has been passed from one generation to the next. I had a friend say it like this one time. It made a lot of sense, just kind of stuck. He said, hey, you know, it's like sin has become part of our DNA. The Bible says that everybody sins. We know of only one who hasn't, and that is Jesus. And we're going to learn a lot about him in the New Testament. But everybody has sinned. The, the Bible says We've all sinned. We've all come up short of, of God's holy standard. We've all come up short with what God wants us to be. And the problem with sin is that when it entered the world and it's been passed from one generation to the next, it absolutely has wrecked our relationship with the Lord. And, and, and the Lord with his creation has been, been damaged because of sin. But God had a plan. God had a plan to fix this. God had a plan to get us back. From day one, God had a plan. And, and everything that we've read so far, you know, we learned all about the sin and everything right at the beginning. And everything else that we have read all the way through the Old Testament 
is the plan to get us back. That plan that I've been referring to, we've called it what? God's upper story. It's his plan to get, get us back. It's his plan to fix the sin problem. It's his fan, plan to come back into community with us. And the very first little glimpse of this plan that God had was way back in chapter 1. It was Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, and he is confronting our enemy, the devil, because of what he had done. He had tempted Eve to sin, Adam and Eve to sin, and so God confronted him. I'm going to paraphrase the conversation, but God's like saying to Satan, you think you've done something special? You, you think you've hurt? You think you've done something here, Satan? Well, I've got something to say to you. Somebody's coming. And I love the words of Genesis 3.15. Do you remember what it said? He will crush you. I love that. He will crush you. And right there in the garden, we get a little taste of the truth that there is a master plan. There is an upper story of what God is doing. Someone is coming. And as we got deeper into our study, and as time went on, there became a picture of what is to come. And the people that we learned about through the Old Testament began to wait in anticipation for this coming. There were prophecies about him. This Messiah was going to come, and he was going to restore everything and make everything right again. Everything that we have studied in these first 21 chapters of the story, or you could just say the Old Testament, everything we've studied, the promise to Abraham to make him a great nation, that nation becoming the, the Israelites who were rescued out of the hands of Pharaoh in Egypt to, to, to Moses leading them um, through the wandering where we learned about the, the law and the building of the tabernacle and how to atone for our sins all the way through the time of the judges and into the season of the kings and then into the divided kingdoms and the Israelites being hauled off into captivity only to be released about 70 years later to go home and rebuild the temple. All of that that we have studied so far has been leading up to the promised Messiah who we know is Jesus. He is the hero of the story. And if you don't remember anything else about today, would you just remember this, that everything in the Old Testament points to our hero, which is Jesus. Everything is about to change. So if you would, please, please open your storybooks to page 309. And if you want to follow along in your regular Bible, I know some of you put your storybook on one leg and your Bible on the other leg. We're going to start in John chapter 1, verse 1. The first words of the Bible were, in the beginning God created. Now let's look at the very first words in the New Testament about Jesus. It says this, in the beginning was the Word. Did you see a little parallel here? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. What in the world is John talking about here? He, he was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. That The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. You want to talk about God's master plan? You want to talk about God's upper story? How about this? Before the world was ever created, in the beginning there was Jesus. 
He was there. That's what John meant when he said, in the beginning was the Word. The Word, and you're going to see it more here in just a minute. The Word is a direct reference to Jesus. You know, when we started this series way back in chapter 1, I made this statement. Maybe you, could re you remember me saying it. I said, if you can believe the first five words of the Bible, you should have no problem be you know, believing the rest of it. If you can believe that in the beginning, God created if you can believe those first five words, you should be able to remember or believe everything. I would like to reemphasize that idea again as we go into the New Testament and say this, that if you can believe the first six words of the New Testament about Jesus, in the beginning was the word, then you should be able to believe everything in the New Testament about Jesus. Most importantly, that Jesus, the hero of our story, would lay down his life for us and be raised to life on the third day to save us from our sins. If you can believe the first six words of what it says about Jesus, in the beginning was the word. What is John trying to communicate to us here? What is he setting up for us as we dive into the story of Jesus? Well, I can tell you what he's trying to communicate. He's trying to communicate this concept that we will see numerous times in the New Testament that God and Jesus are one. That's who Jesus was. He was God. God in the flesh. Now, there's a fancy word that gets tossed around in churches that describes this, this idea, God in the flesh. The word is the incarnation. Have you heard of that word before? We use it sometimes around here. What that just means is God in the flesh. God stepped out of heaven and he walked among his creation. Look what else John says. Keep reading on page 309. This is John chapter 1, verse 14. The word became flesh. It's like saying God became flesh. The Word is Jesus. Jesus and God are one. And the Word, the Lord, became flesh. And he did what? He made his dwelling among us. It means he came and lived with us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John is communicating this, this, this very important, vital aspect about our Heavenly Father that he is coming down, and he came down to walk with his creation, to talk with them, to teach them, to love on them, to provide a way for them, the only way for them to be made right with their Heavenly Father and to one day walk with him in perfect community forever. Jesus came to do for us what we could not do for ourselves, and that is to take away our sin that keeps us from God. God is about to make the biggest move that we have seen yet to get us back. Now, Here's how all of this went down. Please flip a page over to 310. We're going to move now to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. And we're going to look at how all of this unfolded. This is God's big move. This is his biggest move yet to get us back, and this is how it went down. It says this, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph. 
a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. And the angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. And the next verse says, Mary was greatly troubled at his words. Do you think? Now just climb into her shoes for just a minute. And she gets a visit from the angel, and, and, and she's surprised, and she's troubled, and, and I think I would be too. And she wondered what kind of greeting this might be, and the angel said to her, do not be afraid. Do, do you notice a trend of one of the first words to come out of all these angels' mouths when we encounter them in Scripture is, don't be afraid. This must have been a terrifying thing. I would be terrified. But he says, Mary, don't be afraid. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. And Mary asked a great question. How will this be? How's this going to happen? So I'm a virgin. And the angel said, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. You know, reading the circumstances, not just in Luke, but in the other Gospels as well, of all the circumstances that came around the birth of Jesus Christ and all that led up to it, I'll just be honest with you, it kind of blows my mind. I mean, I, mean I, I try to climb into the, to the people that I read about. I try to climb into their shoes and, and ask questions like, what would they have been thinking and how would they have seen this and how would they have understood this? Here you have Mary. She's this young girl. She's pledged to be married to this guy named Joseph. And out of nowhere, there's this angel whose name is Gabriel. He, he appears to her, says, hey, you found favor. You're highly favored. Uh, and God's choosing you to do this very special thing. And and you're going to become pregnant, and, and you're going to give birth to a son, and, and it's okay that you've never been with a man because what's going to happen to you is, is from God, and, and he is going to be God's son, and his kingdom will never come to an end. Every time I read that, and I, I don't know how many times I've read it, hundreds, I don't know if I've read it a thousand, I don't know how many times I've read this, but every time that I read this, I, I get the same response, the same idea comes back to my mind, which is this. That is a lot of information to process in one conversation. That's a lot of information. And don't forget, Mary is just a young woman. You know, when it says that she's, uh, some translations say a young maiden or a young virgin, we understand this. In this culture, she is probably about 14 years old. Maybe a little younger, maybe a little older, but but not much. I mean, for those of us with, of parents in this room, 14-year-old's a kid. It's a child. And here she is, going to be the mother of the Christ. You know what? When I was 14 years old, you want to know what I was thinking about? I was thinking about pizza. You're absolutely right. I was thinking about getting my driver's license one day. I thought a lot about basketball and some about school. That's about as deep as it got when I was 14. But here you have Mary. She's just a young woman, and she is going to bring Emmanuel, God with us, to the world. 
Her world is about to be flipped upside down. She just got the shock of her life, and how does she respond to this? She just found out that she's going to be pregnant outside of marriage, that she's engaged to be married and not sure how her soon-to-be husband is going to react to this. Will he even want to be with her after this? Will he believe her that she has been faithful to him even though she's pregnant? You know, just think about what might be going, will, will her family accept her? Will her community accept, will they abandon her? Did I mention that Mary comes from this teeny little town that barely showed up on a map back then? Anybody from a small town? Mary's world just got rocked. And how does she respond? I love her response. She said on page 310, I am the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. I think her answer is the very reason for why she found favor in God's eyes. What do you think? I don't, I don't want to get too sidetracked from our story, but I do think we, we have to ask this question. How do you respond when your life gets flipped upside down? If it hasn't happened yet, it probably will. Anybody want to stand up and give some testimony today about what it's like when your life gets flipped upside down? How do you respond to that? How do you respond when your emotions get rocked to the very core? A few years ago, I went to read the news on my computer and the headline that day was, Pastor Rick Warren's son commits suicide. You might be familiar with Pastor Rick, Rick, Rick Warren if you've never heard him preach before, but you've probably maybe thumbed through the pages at least once of, of his book that he wrote, The Purpose Driven Life. Anybody read that one? It's like the, the, the bestseller of all bestsellers beside the Bible, I think. His son took his life. And the whole world, because he is a world-known figure and a well-known person in the Christian community for sure, and his critics and his supporters were all kind of just waiting to see, how is this guy going to respond? His world just got rocked. Rick didn't preach for about four months. In fact, he didn't really say much of anything publicly during that four months. He just kind of grieved and was alone and mourned for his son. But after that four months ended, his first sermon back at his church, he said something. I didn't hear the sermon, but I read the transcript, and, and he said this to his church, and, and from his perspective, I've never thought about it like this, through his eyes, he said, God knows what it's like to lose a son. It made a lot of sense to me. He read some scripture, and then he said this to his church. He said, in the middle of all that intense pain, Kay and I, Kay's his wife, felt the favor of God because of your prayers, and we intend to spend the rest of our lives comforting others with the comfort we ourselves have been given by God. In his sermon that day, he, he basically communicated three things to his church, and the first one was this. He said, life doesn't always make sense, but people can have peace because God is with us and God loves us. Second thing that he said that day was this. Everything on earth is broken, 
but we can have joy because God has a greater plan. I think there's some real wisdom in that. Third thing he shared with his church that day was this. We know that life is a battle, but we can have hope because we know there is more to the story. How do you respond when your life gets flipped upside down? Mary said, I am your servant. From Mary's point of view, her lower story, you know, the day-to-day stuff, it was falling apart from her point of view. But we, what we have learned through every chapter of the story, through every circumstance, every event, every person we've met, is that God's upper story is all about turning chaos and confusion, and I would even say our, our biggest mistakes into something beautiful. But this is no unplanned pregnancy. This is not an unplanned pregnancy. But it's the miraculous unfolding of God's ultimate plan to provide a way for each and every one of us to live in this perfect community with God forever. So as her lower story is quite confusing, God's upper story is moving forward as planned. So Mary said, I'm your servant. I think she had in mind something was to come. Now, how did Joseph, you know, her fiancé, how did he handle this news? So I can tell you, not so good. Let's read about it. This is on page 312, and we are now going to move to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verse 19. Here's her fiancé's response. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her Quietly. So yeah, Joseph didn't take this news too well. You might be wondering, this is a good time to say something, why would Joseph have to divorce his fiance? Have you, have you wondered that? Is there something confusing about the language? He's, he's pledged to be married, but he's going to d- divorce her. It doesn't make sense in our culture because we don't quite have the same meanings on the same words. Being pledged to somebody is a lot like our way of being engaged to somebody. The only difference is here, if you're engaged to somebody and you call it off, you just, you know, you know, shake hands and move on. Well, it's probably not that easy. But you just go your separate ways. It's not going to work out. We're going to call off this engagement. But in this day and in this culture, if you are pledged to be married to somebody, it is legally binding. Now, even though this relationship has not been consummated, they are not living under one roof, they have not assumed the roles of husband and wife, they have a legally binding pledge. And to break that pledge is you have to file for divorce. And so Joseph is like, I'm not going to go through with this, and I'm going to break this pledge, and I'm going to file for divorce. And so that's what he was going to do. Until this happened. Look on page 312. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive, give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, God with us. 
And when Joseph woke up, he did what the angel Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Joseph, after the encounter with this angel, he is a changed man. He goes over to see Mary and he reassures her that everything is going to be okay. Can you imagine the good news that must have been to Mary? The one person on the planet, maybe, that even believes her story that she's pregnant and she's a virgin. But her soon-to-be husband says, I believe you, and it's going to be okay. He isn't angry with her. He knows that she's not been with anybody else. He tells her about this dream, and he says, soon you're going to give birth to the Son of God. Again, this is a lot of information to process in a short amount of time. But he reaffirms to her his desire to be her husband. And then soon after that, their pledge season is over and they are married. But they don't consummate that relationship until Jesus is born. Now, you know the rest of the story. Nearly everyone knows the rest of the story to some degree. Mary and Joseph, they travel to Bethlehem, the town of their ancestors, and they do this because Caesar Augustus, the emperor of Rome, has ordered a census to be taken throughout the entire land, and they have to go there to be counted. They're ordered there. And as they arrive in Bethlehem, Mary goes into labor and mention the phrase to anyone in any context this, there was no room in the inn, and that pretty much takes everyone to this story. And from that point, pretty much everyone can kind of get through the rest of the details, even if they're pulling from a Christmas carol or a nativity set. It goes something like this. Joseph tried to find a place for Mary to give birth, but there was no room in the in and so they they found a, a stable or it's more like a cave system i've walked that cave system it's pretty spectacular knowing what happened in there but there she has her baby it's not how they envisioned it but it is all a part of god's upper story the messiah has been born and for the children of Israel, all of these years, the wait is finally over. It's, it's the stable surrounded by farm animals, but the Messiah was born there. And surrounded by the smell and the stink of, of all of that, the, the, the Christ has been born and the angels rejoice and heaven rejoice. And they announce his birth and some shepherds race to the, to the manger to see the king. A Savior, a Messiah, the Lord. Exactly according to plan to save you and me.